Hi everyone. Um, I'm told if you click on the view sign up in the top right and then choose um, uh, side by side, I'm going to show my screen, uh, which has a PowerPoint on it as well. So uh, there we go. If you side by side, you can see the screen as well as me. Is that right? Yep. Great. Okay. How about we pray? And then we'll come to look at this passage together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you that you're a God who speaks, that you uh, keep your word, you keep your promises. When you say that you'll do something, you do it. Uh, help us to, um, uh, to see that today and uh, to be encouraged to trust you all the more in our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the conquest of the promised land, as described in the book of Joshua, is not your orthodox way of going to war. Um, I remember, it's a while ago now, 2003, the Allied forces um, stormed their way into Iraq. Uh, this was the first time that warfare was shown on our television screens. And uh, we saw tanks tearing across the desert, men in the latest combat gear, all with uh, gas masks at the ready for those notorious chemical weapons. Uh, the troops were on high alert and it was all covered by CNN. Well, when the Israelites went into the Jordan, were across the Jordan River to enter into the promised land, they weren't led by the great warriors, but by the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant down to the water's edge. And when they got to the edge of the Jordan River, God miraculously dried up the river uh, so that the Israelites could get across from east to west. But when they cross the Jordan River, what they do on the other side of the Jordan is just seems strange and bizarre. All the men we read in Joshua 5 were circumcised. And then they had a big party, which was what the Passover was. Now, that's not the normal protocol that armies follow when they go to war. What would we have thought if when the Allied forces uh, pushed into, uh, at, well, just outside of Baghdad, they had all their army men circumcised, which would have actually put them out of action for quite a while, and then thrown a big party. That's not what you'd expect. But that's what the Israelites did in preparation for their conquest of the land. And so we've got to ask, why? What are they doing? What's going on here? What's it all about? It's strange. And uh, if we can come to terms with that, we'll see something of the message of this part of the Bible for us today. Because one of the things that the book of Joshua stresses for us is that the people of Israel didn't go into the promised land because of their own military strength. It wasn't because of their great military strategy and their genius. What we see in the book of Joshua is that the land was the gift of God. Right back in the opening of the book, this is what we saw. Joshua chapter one, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. Notice the emphasis there. God is giving it to them. 
Verse three, I'll give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Be strong and courageous because you'll lead these people to inherit the land. I swore to their ancestors to give them. See, throughout the book of Joshua, the land is God's gift to his people. And it's according to what God has promised. See, from a human point of view, there was no way the Israelites were going to take the land. They'd been wandering in the desert for 40 years. The people who lived in the land, the Canaanites, they had the latest technology. They had fortified cities. They had iron chariots. The Israelites didn't have any of those things. And yet the Israelites had the promise of God, the promise that he was going to give them the land. That was a promise that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis 12. God said to Abraham, after he traveled through the land, this land that they've been given, as far as the side of the great tree of Moriah at Shechem, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So the Canaanites had been in the land for quite some time. But the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. That was the promise of God. And the book of Joshua shows us the power of God's promise. We've already seen in the book that God's promise put fear into the pagan prostitute Rahab in Joshua 2, so that she sided with God's people rather than the Canaanites. It's the same promise of God that put the fear of God into the Canaanite kings. That's what we just read at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1. All the Amorite kings, another name for the Canaanites, the part of the Canaan, they, the, the Amorite kings west of the Jordan, and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they'd crossed over, and their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. See, if the Israelites were going to take this land, it wasn't through their own strength. It wasn't through their own military genius. It was because their God was powerful to give it to them, to keep his promise. And therefore, the implication, the, 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 the message for God's people through the ages, including us today, is trust the power of God's promise. God's promise is powerful. Back in chapter one again, be strong and courageous because you'll lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Because it's God's promise that's giving the people the land, the response is to trust that promise to obey the word of the Lord, to obey what God had given his people through Moses. And that's the context in which we come to these ceremonies that we see in chapter five, the ceremony of circumcision and the ceremony of the Passover. Circumcision was the great sign of the promise that God gave to Abraham some 500 years earlier. The promise of the land uh, was part of that promise, which was memorialized through circumcision. So back in Genesis chapter 17, 
God said to Abraham, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I'll be their God. See, there's the promise of the land once again. And then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you're to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You're to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Notice there the, the word, the sign. Circumcision is a sign, a symbol, a visible symbol of this covenant that God is entering into. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner. Those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who's not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. See, this was the, the sign, the symbol of God's promise. And it was to be performed on every eight-day-old male throughout the generations in this sense you could in a sense call it a cut of kindness it was a god's kindness in his covenant that was being remembered through this cut but there's an irony there because if you don't have the cut in the flesh you're going to be cut off from your people it's it, it's uh, the symbol of being one of god's people if you didn't have that cut you were to be excluded and so in Joshua 5, we learn, somewhat troublingly, that this whole generation of Israelites who've just come into the land have not been circumcised. Joshua explains in verse 2, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. You may wonder how they can be circumcised again. Well, as we read on, it's not a second circumcision, but the second generation is being circumcised. Look at verse 3 again. Joshua made flint knives, circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haaraloth, which we're told, um, well, we're not told, but down in the footnotes of the NIV, uh, the Hebrew translates as, this place translates as hill of foreskins, and we're going to see why it becomes a mountain in a moment. Uh, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they'd not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he'd solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they'd not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they'd been healed. Now, Joshua doesn't tell us exactly why this generation who'd been born in the wilderness and, and raised in the wilderness, why it was that they hadn't been circumcised. It's possible they didn't have the opportunity, they didn't have the equipment, or more likely, given the stories that we've read so far, it's just another sign 
uh, that the previous generation didn't actually trust God's promises. Uh, they didn't circumcise their children. Um, indeed, Moses uh, didn't circumcise his child until he was confronted uh, by the Lord and um, Zipporah, his wife, circumcised his son. Uh, it was a failure to trust God's promise. And it was, as we're told, the previous generation's unbelief that stopped them from entering into the land. When the spies came back saying that the land was great, we can, uh, they didn't believe that report and thought, oh, the Canaanites won't let us. Uh, and so they rebelled against Moses and they rebelled against the spies. Because of their unbelief, God said that that generation that came out of Egypt would fall in the wilderness and it would be their offspring who would inherit the land. And so that's how God is faithful to his promises. But if you don't trust God, if you don't trust his promises, you won't inherit them. And so God keeps his promise now in this next generation. And in a sense, what the Israelites were doing as they were circumcised was claiming those promises for themselves. They were saying, yes, we are the Lord's people. And so before they go into do battle with the Canaanites, in a sense, they're putting on the uniform, they're putting on uh, the marker, the jersey to say that they're on the Lord's team, like our Olympians putting on the green and the gold to proudly identify as Australians. Uh, the Israelites here are saying, I'm on the Lord's side. And this is so important because they weren't going to win this battle in their own strength. After they're circumcised, the Lord says in verse 9 to Joshua, today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. And there's a word play here. Again, if you look at the footnote, if you've got an NIV Bible, Gilgal sounds like the Hebrew for roll, which is galal, Gilgal galal. There's a word play uh, with the Israelites coming into the land declaring their trust in the promises of God, being circumcised, all those taunts, the way that the Egyptians mocked the Israelites, the way that they mocked their God. Uh, you know, oh, you're slaves, Israelites. How are you going to be powerful? Oh, you're just wandering in the wilderness, you desert hillbillies. How are you going to be God's people? You know, all that mockery, all the jokes that the nations would have made about Israel are now rolled away. The kings of the nations aren't laughing at Israel anymore. Actually, as we were told, their hearts are melting in fear. The reproach of Egypt is rolled away. And mentioning Egypt now becomes um, a good transition into this next symbolic action, this symbolic ceremony that they celebrate, uh, which is the Passover. Now, if I were an Israelite male, I think I'd be a lot more keen on this symbol um, uh, than the previous one. But the Passover is also a way of remembering the promises that God has made and the way that God keeps his promises. In Exodus chapter 12, Pharaoh finally let the Israelites go it, after the, um, the plague where the firstborn in every household was struck dead. The, the, well, the, the, every household that didn't have the, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house. That's where the, the word 
Passover comes from. The angel of death came in through the, the city and passed over the houses that had the blood on the doorposts. But where there was no blood on the doorposts, uh, the firstborn was struck dead. And that was the final blow that meant that Pharaoh let the Israelite people go. And the Israelites were to remember this great salvation by celebrating the meal annually. Uh, successive generations were to remember this great act of God's salvation in overcoming the mighty power of Egypt. Like circumcision, the Passover was another sign or symbol of being one of God's people. It was a way of claiming those promises of God. And so what the people are doing here is, again, putting on the jersey, putting on the uniform, saying, we're one of the Lord's people. We're the ones whom God delivered from Egypt with a mighty hand. They're following God's instructions here in the book of Exodus. The Lord, uh, Moses said to the people, um, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast. And on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in is it to be seen among you nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be with you, sorry, will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead. See that word sign again? The Passover is a sign on their hand, a reminder on their forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. So that's what Moses had said, what the Lord had said through Moses. Now they're in the land and um, uh, it's the land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, three times in two verses, we're told they ate from the fruit of the land. So in verse 10, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land. Unleavened bread, roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. One of the interesting things in Exodus 12 is that before you celebrate the Passover, you need to be circumcised. Exodus 12, verse 48, a foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. And so there's the logic circumcision, then Passover, both these symbols, these signs of being the Lord's people. See, this is a huge moment in the Old Testament story, a huge moment in Israel's history, 
This is what they'd been looking forward to. On this day, the manna stopped. The wilderness wandering was over. This was the first taste of what God had promised for his people. They were going in to inherit the land that he had promised. So what does all this say to us today? Well, if we put this story into the bigger story of the Bible, what God is doing in bringing the Israelites into the land under Joshua, as big as that is, really, that's just one small step in God's purposes to bring blessing to people from all nations of the world. That's what he promised back to Abraham. In Genesis 12, he said to Abraham, through you, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And it's that bigger promise to Abraham that's finally brought about in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's that promise to Abraham that the New Testament calls the gospel. See, the people here in Joshua stood at a monumental point in their history. But the thing that made sense of their history was what God had promised the gospel. And what we see is that nothing will get in the way of God keeping his promises. As powerful as the Canaanites were, God was more powerful still. As powerful and as disorientating as the pandemic looks, God is more powerful still. Nothing will stop his purposes. And so the Israelites understood that God was keeping his promises. And so they made sure that they were aligning themselves with God by circumcising themselves and celebrating the Passover. From a human point of view, it looks stupid. And so often, even today, people mock Christians for their beliefs. But given what God has said and given what God is doing, it is the wise course of action. They were, God's, they were God's signs and symbols given to them. And so it made sense, if you were on the Lord's side, to do these things. Now, the Israelites weren't saved by doing these things. Throughout the Bible, in that reading we had from Ephesians 2, we're, we're not saved by our works. God saved the Israelites out of Egypt by his power, by his grace. Ultimately, that looks forward to the greater salvation that God achieved through Jesus, through his death on the cross, bringing salvation and blessing. But circumcision and the Passover were signs or symbols that the Israelites were trusting in those promises of God, that they'd experienced his power in salvation. And so what the Israelites did in this passage is what God calls everyone to do today, to not to necessarily have circumcision and Passover, but to take hold of the symbols that God gives us, to align, well, more importantly, to align ourselves with God and what he is doing in the world, to put on the team jersey and say publicly, I'm on the Lord's side. If you haven't put yourself on the Lord's side, uh, it's really important that you do that, because that's really the wise course of action, given what God is doing in the world. It's interesting for Christians, the signs and symbols of our salvation in Jesus are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a sign of becoming a follower of Jesus. It's putting on the jersey. 
the Lord's Supper is we share the bread and the wine and remember God's great salvation to us in Jesus. And we look forward to being able to do that together again. Now, of course, you can be a Christian without the symbols. But it's a much bigger problem, this passage shows us, to carry the signs, to, to go through the symbols and not be a Christian. This passage reminds us that the Israelites who came out of Egypt had been circumcised, and yet they didn't inherit the promise because they didn't continue in obedience. And so this is where this passage challenges us as well. To not only claim, well, to claim the promises of God, not only to have the symbols, but to actually live out God's word in our lives, to continue to trust and obey God's good promises. Let's pray that we might do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness expressed to us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though we are rebellious, you do not give us what we deserve, but we've been forgiven through Jesus and his death. Help us to understand the times in which we live, between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming. We know that you're a God who keeps your promises amidst all the troubles and trials we face. You have set a day when you will put the world right. In the meantime, you are saving people from all nations. Help us to be people who trust your gospel. Help us to be people who proclaim your gospel promises. And as we look forward to um, ultimately taking the land and that promised land of heaven, help us to take time to reflect on our relationship with you as the Israelites reflected on your good promises in this passage. We pray that we might take it to heart and seek to live out your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks.